Turn with me this morning to the book of Exodus. We'll be in Exodus chapter 20 this morning. We take a little diversion out of our study of Matthew for a time. We'll be back in Matthew after the beginning of the new year. We want to spend a little time in Exodus this morning, verses, chapter 20, verses 1 through 3, as somewhat of a conclusion to our Youth Disciple Now weekend and also as a reminder for us as a church. As I, as I said, this is a significant morning. Our, our students wrapping up Disciple Now, and it has been more often times than not, as Bill mentioned, that Disciple Now weekend coincides with our anniversary, and, and it is an important day. I appreciate the youth and the spirit which they worship the Lord this weekend. It was, beauty. It was beautiful to see. We also gather, as we said, on our anniversary. An important day, an important day that we come together, we celebrate, and we do think back with Thanksgiving. And as we do, I, I want us to turn to Exodus 20 for two reasons. One is the simple truth that as Grace Baptist Church, if we fail to worship God alone, then we have failed as a church. We must not fail to worship God and to exalt his name. The second reason we turned to Exodus 20 is because our students spent the weekend thinking about what does it mean to be renewed in the Lord. You spent a lot of time having fun, you made memories, you spent time losing sleep together, and you spent time hearing the word and studying and hearing testimonies of young adults who are still pursuing the Lord through college and as young adults into their careers. But students, I would tell you this. If you fail... Sorry. (laughs) If you fail to worship God alone, you have just spent three days wasting your time. You see, we are called to exalt the name of God. You are called to lift high the name of Christ. And all that we do and all that we are as a church is not for the glory of man, but it's for the glory of God. And all that we do and all that we are as a student ministry and doing events like Disciple Now and all that Matt has poured into you this weekend and leading up, it is not for the fame of Matt Thompson. It is not for the fame of Grace Baptist Church. It is not so that you can have a great t-shirt. And yes, I'm not wearing it. I know I'm out of dress code for Disciple Now weekend. I've been reminded of that. All that this weekend was about is worshiping God. And you need to know this morning that doing church things while being divorced from worshiping God will leave you, as John just said a few minutes ago in in the youth room, it will leave you frustrated, it will leave you disappointed, it will leave you empty because in the end it is mere idolatry. And so we want to set our gaze upon the Lord and upon his call to worship him alone. So let's read Exodus 20, verses 1 through 3. Word of God says, and God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Let's pray together. Oh God, you 
tell us in Psalm 119, verse 18, to open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things about your law. God, that is our prayer. That as we turn back to such a key and foundational and pivotal moment in your plan of redemption, in your working and giving of the law to your people, God, would you open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things about your law this morning. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, flip back in your Bible one chapter to Exodus 19. Exodus 19, we don't have time to read the entire chapter, but what we have in Exodus 19 is really an astonishing moment in which God speaks to his people. The, the people have gathered around the, the base of, of Mount Sinai and, and God calls Moses to the top of the mountain and he tells him, he says, you need to go back down and you need to tell the people to consecrate themselves, to set themselves apart. For in three days I am going to speak and I'm going to come and they need to be ready for that day. And as they prepare and as they get ready, he says there and talks about it in, in, in verses 10 through 15. He, he gives them warning about not going too close to the mountain, not, not touching the mountain. For anyone who even touches the mountain will be put to death. Because the very presence of God is there. And what happens is, is on the morning of the third day, you see there in verse 16, the, the third day there were thunders and lightnings, a thick cloud on the mountain, a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. They, they didn't sit back and go, wow, that's interesting. They didn't laugh. They weren't pulling out their, their phones and taking pictures to document the day. They were trembling. They were trembling before the mountain. It says Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top and Moses went up. Moses goes up, he hears from the Lord, he goes back down and we have the giving of the, the Ten Commandments. If you skip on to chapter 20, verses 18, it says, now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and they trembled. They stood far off and they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. See, when God spoke, it was a, a fearful thing. It was an amazing moment. And so we start right here in verse 1, in, in Exodus chapter 20, verse 1, we read a statement, and God spoke all these words saying. And we can't just breeze past that without seeing the, the enormity of the statement that God spoke all of these words. See, the Ten Commandments, the law, they, they, they weren't just words of Moses. They were the very words of God that he himself spoke to the people. And, and, and the interesting thing about that is, is that all through the ages, men have sought to know God. 
They, they, but they sought to, 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 to create him, to, to create mythological gods that, that control nature and, and control and influence their lives. And, and they assign gods that they kind of fit after them and, and what they think. And man is constantly reaching and striving and, and building religions. Man has formulated all sorts of ways to appease the gods, to earn God's favor, to, to fashion and form religions that, that would help them to learn about God because man has this innate sense, this innate understanding there is something greater. We, we all have this longing, this desire for the transcendent, something that is greater, something that is beyond the self, something that is mightier than us. And so we come to Exodus 21 and we, we read this glorious truth that God spoke to man. God has, has spoken to man. He has revealed himself to us. He has made himself known to us. In 1972, Francis Schaeffer wrote a book called He Is There and He Is Not Silent. It's a, it's a short book, probably 80, 90 pages long. And in the book, Schaeffer, Schaeffer asked two questions. Is one does God exist? And second, if he exists, can we know him? And so, so Schaefer breaks out, and it's just four chapters long. The book is, is just four chapters, and, and through a compelling discussion, the first two chapters, what he does is he looks at the, our very existence and the presence of morality, that morality even exists and that we are even here. And he looks at those two things, and he comes away and says, God does indeed exist. There's no logical or rational answer out of the fa- outside of the fact that God is indeed there. He exists. He is real. He's not some concept. He's not some idea that man has generated, but God is indeed there. Now, the next question then is naturally, if God is there, then how do we know him? How how do we know him? How do we learn about him? Well, Schaefer's answer is beautiful. Schaefer's answer is that the way we know him is that God is not silent. God is not silent. He has indeed spoken. He has an extended discussion of the fact that that God created man in his image. And part of that, what it means is that creating man in his image is that he has given man the intellect and the ability to communicate with very complex and beautiful language, something that you do not see in the rest of creation, the complexity, the nuance of our language. And God communicates to us through that very language God is there and he is not silent in Exodus 21 God spoke all these words that is what this verse is a reminder that we come today and we gather and we worship the God who indeed exists and the God who has revealed himself to us it is a reminder and encouragement that we need not grope around searching for what God is like he's told us we we need not imagine how he acts He has told us. We need not wonder about his character. He has told us about it. We need not doubt whether whether our lives have purpose. He's told us. We need not be ignorant of how we are to live. He's told us. We need not question how we might be saved. He has told us. God has spoken. God has spoken. And for that, today, we are grateful. We turn to Exodus 20, verse 2. Exodus 20, verse 2, and before giving the commandments, God makes a statement that becomes a reality all through the narrative of Scripture. We see it time and time again. God makes a statement about who he is and what he's done. 
I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And and we'll see that throughout the rest of Scripture, that that when God calls us to live in such a way and he, he calls us to live for his glory, it's always with the foundation of who he is and what he's done. He doesn't call us to live. He doesn't call us to obey so that we can earn him. It is out of thanksgiving. It is out of worship for who he is and what he's done. And so we see verse to the first part, he, he makes a statement about who he is. He says, I am the Lord, your God. You, you see there the capital, all caps there, L-O-R-D. Significant in your English translations because when you see that in the Old Testament, when you see the word Lord with all caps, it is the Hebrew word Yahweh. The, the, the name of God revealed to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 3 and 4. We, we come to that and we, we're reminded that he is the Lord, our God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am who I am, God said in that moment. That he is the one true living God who transcends above all others. There is no other God. All of creation depends on him. He depends on no one. He never had a beginning and he will never have an end. He simply is the great I am. Isaiah 45, 21 says, there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a savior. There is none besides me, none, no one. And he is the same today. He still is the only true God. See here, we have a statement of his transcendence. He is the transcendent God that reigns above all things and he is greater than all things he is other he is distant he is amazing he is incredible he is holy he is awesome he is God he is the great I am but then we come to the second part of verse 2 and we hear what he's done we've heard what he who he is and now what he has done he says I am the God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery this is, this is what I've done. So while God is transcendent, what we see here is we have a beautiful picture in one verse that not only is he transcendent, but he is imminent. He is actively involved in our lives. He is Lord above all things, who reigns supreme, who is exalted, who is sovereign. But he is active in our lives. And he says, I am the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery. He is providentially active in your life and active in my life. That is a beautiful truth to behold. In Deuteronomy 4.39, I love love the balance in this verse. He says, know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth below. There is no other. God reigns. He rules and he is active in our lives. He is the God who freed the Israelites from Egyptian slavery. He is the God who redeemed them, who led them out, who defeated all of the little G gods of Egypt. He's the God who was greater than Pharaoh and the God who split the Red Sea. And he is the same God today. Who he was is who he is and who he always will be. What he did is what he does and what he will continue to do. He is the Lord. But see, we tend to have a problem, I think. We, we struggle with spiritual amnesia. I think it's easy for us to 
just get into the routines of life and to walk through the doors on a Sunday morning, forgetting who we worship. I think it's easy for us to, if we're reminded on Sunday, and hopefully you are, to go about our day and something happens and forget who it is that God is. And so I just want to remind you this morning. I want to remind you who God is. In Isaiah 40, 28, he's the everlasting God. In Exodus 34, 6, he's the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. In Nehemiah 9, 31, he is the gracious and merciful God. In Isaiah 6, 3, he is the holy, holy, holy God. In Ephesians 5, 6 and Colossians 3, 6, he is the holy God who pours out holy wrath on sin. In Deuteronomy 32, 4, he is the rock. His work is perfect for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. In 1 Chronicles 16, 34, he is good and his love endures forever. In Psalm 86, 5, he is good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon him. In Lamentations 3, 22 and 23, he is the God whose mercies endure forever and renew every morning. In Job 42, 2, he is the omnipotent, all-powerful God who can do all things no plan of his can be thwarted. And we read again in one, Psalm 115.3 that he does all that he pleases. And in Matthew 19.26, he is the God with whom all things are possible. In Psalm 46.1, he is the ever-present God who is our refuge and strength, the very present help in trouble. In Genesis 16.13 and Hebrews 4.13, he is the God who sees everything. In Matthew 28.20, he is therefore with us at all Times In Romans 11.33, he is the God whose wisdom and knowledge is too deep for us to even fathom. In Numbers 14.18, he is the patient God who is slow to anger and abounding in love. In Psalm 119.137, he is the God whose righteousness is everlasting. In Zephaniah 3.5, the Lord is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail. In Acts 17, 24, he is the self-existent giver of life who needs nothing yet created all things. In John 14, 6, he is the way, the truth, and the life. In Malachi 3, 6, he is the God who does not change. And in Isaiah 46, 10, he is the sovereign God whose purpose will stand and who does all that he pleases. This God does amazing and awesome things. He acts in mighty ways. He acts in ways unfathomable to man. In Genesis 1, 2, he is the God who created all things. In Colossians 1, 17, he is the God who holds all things together. In Exodus 21, he's the God who speaks that we might know him. In Exodus, he is the God who heard his people's cries and saved them out of slavery. In Joshua, he is the God who fought for his people. In Judges 7, he is the God who used Gideon and 300 men to defeat the Midianite army. In Isaiah 25, he's the God who swallowed up death and saved us, students. Do you remember that? In Psalm 23, he's our great shepherd who leads, provides, and protects us. In Psalm 25, he's the God who guides us through every path of life. In Isaiah 43, 1, Galatians 3, 13, he's the God who has redeemed his people. In Ephesians 5, or 1, 5, he's the God who predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ through the, according to the pleasure of his will. In John 2, he's the God who turned water into wine. John 5, he's the God who healed the lame. John 6, 1 to 15, he's the God who fed 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. 
John 6, 16 to 24, he's the God who walked on water. John 9, 1 to 12, he's the God who healed a man born blind. In John 11, he rose Lazarus from the dead. In John 3, 16, he's the God who sent his own son that we might be saved. In Romans 5, 8, he's the God who then died for us as a demonstration of his supreme love. In John 20, he's a God who was not in his tomb because his tomb could not hold him. Acts 2, 24 said that death could not hold him. It was impossible for death to keep him, it says. Romans 3, 24. He was the God who was our propitiation, taking the full wrath of God on himself. In Romans 3, 21 and 25, he is the just God who justifies us by faith in Christ. In Matthew 6, 25 to 34, he's the God who provides for your and my every need. In Acts 16, he's the God who freed Silas and Paul from prison with an earthquake. And thanks be to God. In Revelation. He's the God who won and who's coming again. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Behold our God. Who is like our God? Who is like him? Who else can compare? Who else has done what he has done? He existed before us. He made us. He saves us and he sustains us. He will reign forever. He alone is God, students. He alone is worthy of your worship. All the things that everybody sells you, worship this. Give your life to this. Give everything you have to this. This is where you find your identity. No, God is God alone, and God alone is worthy of your worship. Worship him alone. Worship him alone. So that's why we have the command. That's why we come to Exodus 23. You see, if you just read Exodus 23 and you fail to see who God is, you fail to see what God's done, you fail to realize the beauty that God has revealed himself to us, he speaks to us, then you miss the value and the meaning of 20 verse 3. You see, this, this first commandment, it's not some type of payback that we do. It's not something that we go, well, okay, then this is what I owe to God. I have to pay him back. No. The first commandment is the call to worship God because he alone is worthy of our worship. He alone is worthy. He, is alone, he alone is worthy of glory. It's precisely because he alone is worthy that he says in Scripture, I will not share my glory with another. I will not share it. Isaiah 42, 8, he says, I am the Lord. That's my name. That's my name. I am the Lord, and my glory I give to no other, no other, nor my praise to carved idols. And then later in Isaiah 48, 11, he says, for my own sake, for my own sake, he repeats that so that maybe it'll get through our thick skull. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory, he says, my glory, I will not give to another. Because he alone is worthy. Does it bother you today? Does it bother you that God would say, I will not give my glory to another? I, I do this for my own sake, my name's sake. Does that bother you? If that, if that bothers you, then I'd ask you a simple question. Who else is worthy of praise? Who else? Tell me. It's not a rhetorical question. Tell me. Who else is worthy of praise? I'm not. You're not. No man is worthy of praise. No inanimate object is worthy of praise. It'll all burn. 
Who else is worthy? It is absolutely right. It is absolutely holy. It is absolutely good for God to demand worship because he is the only one who is supremely righteous, holy, and good. There is no other. He is the only one worthy of worship. And so he says in verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. No other gods. He says, I am the Lord Yahweh in verse 2. And now in verse 3, he says, you shall have no other little g gods before me. The word there is Elohim. Many gods, little gods, false gods, man-made gods. There's a big difference between Yahweh and little g gods. And we need to know the difference. We need to know the difference between the one true living God who is the great I am who is all that we went through and and heard that he is and has done all that he's done. We need to know the difference between him and all the little g gods that come into our life. You see, the people, when, 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 when God speaks this word to them, he says, you shall have no other gods before me, they're coming out of Egypt. They're coming out of a land that, that was filled with all sorts of gods. The plagues addressed them. The plagues defeated them. The plagues make a mockery of them. But then they're, they're walking into, they're going into the land of Canaan, a place, again, filled with multiple gods, little g gods. And God here in verse 3 calls them to worship him and him alone. He calls them to monotheism in a land of polytheists, a land that worships many gods. He calls them to exalt his name and his name alone. There is no other. It would have been a radical command for them. It's a radical command for us. We live in a land where people worship all sorts of gods. People give their lives to all sorts of things, all sorts of people. And the reality is that people are okay with you being religious and people are okay with you being a Christian as long as you don't demand that you worship him and him alone. As long as you are fine with having all these other gods and and just adding Jesus in and, and him being one among many, they're okay with that. But when you say there is no God but God alone, then that causes a stir. That causes a problem. But that's exactly what we're called to proclaim. That's exactly what we're called to live is that we live in a way that we worship God and God alone. There are no other gods before him. When we, when we read that, when, there some, some people get confused. What does it mean that you shall have no other gods before me? Does that, is, is that indicating this hierarchy of gods? And as long as God is number one and everything else is number two and lower, then it's okay. Is that what it means? It, that's, that's not what it means. But that's what a lot of people attempt. They say, well, I've got God first in my life. And, and then these other things are important. They're right behind, the, but that's the order, right? Listen, if that's what you're doing, you need, you need to know that if you're thinking that way, if you're thinking, you know, I just have God first and everything else is, I have this list, then what you've done it, essentially is you've set the table for your heart to feast on idolatry. That's all you've done. Is you've said, you know what, God's here and then there's all these other things and what happens is all of a sudden God moved out and you've got all of these things for your heart to feast on. You see what it means When we read, you shall have no other gods before me, it means that we are to worship God alone and there are no other gods in our lives. So our bullet-pointed list of gods in our life has one point, and that's it. It's just one point. God, Yahweh, Jesus, the triune God that is holy, holy, holy. He is God alone. He is our everything. He is our all. 
He informs everything that we do. Everything is done in worship of Him. But we're prone to wonder. We're prone to put others before Him. And honestly, I would say the one that we put before God the most is typically ourselves. It's typically the worship of self. In fact, that came across an article this week from a guy named Thaddeus Williams. He, he wrote an article entitled, Self-Worship is the World's Fastest Growing Religion. Notes that 84% of Americans believe, quote, enjoying yourself is the highest goal of life. 84%. He, he lists out six sacred commandments of self-worship. Let's see if these ring a bell. Number one, your mind is... Your mind is the source and standard of truth. Number two, your emotions are authoritative. What what that means is since your emotions are authoritative, then you just follow your heart. Just follow your heart. Whatever you feel, that's what you do. Number three, you're sovereign, which means that the universe needs to just bend around all your dreams and desires. What you want, because you're sovereign, you're in control, then everything just needs to come around and, and just work for me right? So I'm sovereign, so everything in the universe should, should be orchestrated to make me happy and to come into what I want. Just all come to me. Four, you're supreme. You're supreme. So that means you operate and you make decisions and you live for your own glory. What I want goes, and that's what I'm going to operate for. Number five, he says, you are the standard of goodness. See that big time, don't we? Everyone must meet your standard, and the, the idea that you are a sinner then is really antiquated. I mean, really? Me? I, I'm the standard of goodness. I mean, look at, look at what I do. Look who I am. And then finally, you are the creator who is able to craft your own identity and your purpose. It's an interesting article. Although, I, I would say while it's a current trend and it indeed is quickly growing, It's an ancient problem. It's an ancient problem of the heart that man turns to worship himself in rebellion to God. It's nothing new. It's nothing new. And God calls us out of that to worship him. To worship him. But our basic propensity to worship ourselves, to exalt self, or to worship others, or other stuff, is the basis for our need for Christ. See, I, I would say there's a lot, perhaps in here, perhaps online, perhaps that you interact with on a daily basis, who are caught up in false worship. Maybe that's the worship of yourself. Maybe that's the worship of another person or another group of people you seek to impress. Maybe that's the, the worship of stuff. Maybe it's the worship of some cultural trend or cause. Maybe it's the worship of your profession. If that's you, I would ask you a really simple question this morning. If you say, yeah, I'm pursuing something outside of Christ. I'm I'm pursuing, I'm worshiping something other than God. If that's you, you would honestly say, you know, I'm worshiping something else. There's something else there. Then, Then I would ask you this, is what value, what value will the person or thing that you worship have when you stand before God? At the end of your days, what value will that person or that thing or that idea have? 
Can, can you, if you're worshiping yourself, if your life is just totally about you, me, myself, what value will you have at the end of your days? Can you really save your own soul? That, that person that you are giving all of your attention, all of your time, all of your desires, all your worship to, can that person save your soul? Can, can the, the flag of whatever cultural trend or whatever cause of the day that you so passionately wave and stand for and tweet about and post about, can that save your soul? Can your stuff, can your money, can your toys, can it save your soul? None of those will matter. When you stand before God, none of that matters. It'll all be found worthless when you stand before God Almighty. The only thing that matters when you stand before God at the end of days is are you covered in the blood of Christ? Do you stand before God Almighty and say, I'm nothing. I'm a sinner. I've rebelled against you. But I've been justified. I've been redeemed. I've been saved by Jesus Christ. My faith is in him. Yet not I, but Christ in me. I stand here clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Listen, students, you need to know that being renewed in Christ begins by being redeemed by Christ. There is no renewal apart from redemption. It's just vain religion. It begins with being redeemed. And that's the same place it begins for everyone in here is that we first have to come to Christ in faith and worship God alone. And worship God alone. I want to leave you this morning with a tale of two kings. The tale of two kings. The first one is Solomon. Solomon, King Solomon. You don't have to flip there. You just jot it down. But in 1 Kings 11, we read something important about Solomon. Solomon, you may know, was the son of King David, he was the wisest of kings. God gave him immense wisdom and comparable to, by men. He was wealthy. People came from lands distant to see his wealth, his wisdom. But Solomon made a fatal error. A fatal error. Instead of clinging to God, Solomon clung to women who worshipped false gods. And led him to do the same. It led him to do the same. So, so what we find out is in, in, in 1 Kings 11, starting in verse 9, listen to what we learn. King Solomon, it says, the Lord was angry with Solomon. Why? Why do you think God was angry? It says, because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods. But, there it is, but Solomon did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and give it to your servant. Solomon made a fatal flaw. He did not worship God alone. He turned his heart to other gods. Now, you have Solomon on the one hand. 
whose kingdom was torn from him because he forsook his God and he worshiped other gods. On the other hand, you have King David, his father. King David, his father. Look at Psalm 16. It's a psalm that Pastor Bill read. Psalm 16 we, is written by David. He, he is the great king of Israel, the man who you know probably, you've probably heard this, that Scripture describes as a man after God's own heart. David certainly had his struggles. He wasn't perfect. He had his bouts with sin. He had his failures. But through the midst of his struggles and failures and rebellion, his heart was set upon the Lord. We see that in Psalm 16. It's a beautiful picture of, of David, and you get a glimpse of his heart. Students, you started there Friday night. John took you to Psalm 16, and you, you looked at what he says there. We in there today. And I just want to point out a few things in there. Look at verse two. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, but, what does he say? I say to the Lord, but you are my Lord. And I have no good apart from you. That is Exodus 23. That is David saying, I worship you alone. There's no other. He says, I say to the Lord Yahweh that you are my Lord, my master. You are my Lord. That is who you are, he says there in verse two. You get down to verse four and David understands. (laughs) You're you're just thinking, man, Solomon really should have had the wisdom, ironic, to listen to his dad. Verse four, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Oh, that we would hear that this morning. That we would hear Exodus 23, you shall have no other gods before me. And then we would see Psalm 16, four and say the sorrows of those who run after another God will multiply. We see it in Solomon's life. We see it throughout Scripture that when we run after a false God, our sorrows will multiply. David knew this. We need to know it. Then in verse 5, he says, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. He goes on in verse 6 to say, I have a beautiful inheritance. He blesses the Lord in verse 8. He says that he has set the Lord always before him and he will not be shaken. Now, what is the result? What is the result? The result of Solomon is that he runs after false gods and what does God do? God tears the kingdom away from him. He removes the kingdom. But now, David says, you're my chosen portion. You are my Lord. He's worshiping God in verse 9. Therefore, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh dwells secure. Why? Because you, verse 10, will not abandon my soul to Sheol and let your Holy One see corruption. (laughs) Isn't that beautiful? You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. Fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Listen. Students, you can seek after all the pleasure you want. You can seek after all the joy you want. But you need to know today that it is found in the presence of God Almighty. That is where it is found. You make, he makes known to us the path of life. In his presence there is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. He will not abandon your soul. He will not let you see corruption. In Christ, your heart is glad, your being rejoices, and your flesh dwells secure. That is being renewed. That is what it means to know God and to worship him. And so I would leave you this morning 
with a familiar verse, a familiar passage that I think puts it all before us. I'm so glad, I'm so glad that God gave us this. In Joshua 24, when Joshua is departing, he looks out at the people, he knows they're walking into a land filled with false gods, and he says this. He says, Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Students, choose this day whom you will serve. There's a lot of gods in our culture. There are a lot of things that your soul messages your soul of who you should give your life to where you find your identity, what will bring lasting happiness. John talked to you the other night about. All those things will sell you short. They will all leave you empty and frustrated and lacking. So choose you this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And I charge you to serve the Lord, to worship Him and Him alone today. We're going to end our time together today observing the Lord's Supper. As it is our anniversary, there's no better day than today to serve the Lord's Supper. Our deacons are going to begin making their way down. As they do, I... I just want to remind you and to tell you there is no greater thing that God has done but sending his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life, to die in our place, to rise from the grave so that all who repent and trust in him might be saved. What a great and mighty work of our God. And so in this moment, in just a moment, we're going to pray and our deacons are going to serve communion, the Lord's Supper, and you'll get two cups, one cup on the bottom, should have a piece of bread in it, and then a juice cup on top. Just hold those and we'll partake of the Lord's Supper together once everything has been distributed. If you're here and you're visiting, you're, you're not a believer, if you've never trusted Christ as your Lord, then I would ask you to, to sit and let, let the elements pass by you and, and consider the message of the gospel. If you're here visiting and you are a believer, we invite you to take part with us this morning in remembrance of what God has done. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you, O oh God, today for all that you've done. And we give you praise for you are the one true living God. There is no other. Oh God, we worship you, we give you glory because you alone are worthy of worship, oh God. You alone. And God, we thank you for all that you've done, but God, in this moment, God, we give thanks for saving us through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
God, your grace and your mercy and love is overwhelming. Thank you, God. So God, we ask you to bless this meal. Bless this time. May we seek you, examine ourselves, and may our affections be stirred to remember all that you've done out of your great mercy and grace. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.